Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a message by Chris Hodges, and and it was a really inspiring message. It speaks powerfully to men, but women, if you're here today, uh, it's more than enough for all of us, and so I'm borrowing a lot of his ideas for this message. Today, our story series is taking a break from the parables of Jesus. We're going to talk about the story of a man who, in almost every respect, uh, would be considered in our current culture as the man's man. Now, understand our current culture view has some pretty warped ideas, and we get that, right? But this man would be the man today, if you were alive, that everybody would want to be. This man would have starred in the greatest Christmas movie of all time, which is Die Hard. Die Hard. It happens on Christmas Eve. It's the best Christmas movie of all time, right? The guy we're talking about would be today the star athlete, the guy who's in all the commercials, the guy who has the supermodel on his arm, the paparazzi are following, everybody's talking about, everybody's writing about him, he's on media all the time. And the guy we're talking about today is also in the Hall of Fame of Faith in the Bible, found in Hebrews 12. It lists a number of the Hall of Fame people for faith in the Bible, and then it also goes on to say they and all the followers of Jesus who have gone before us, before us make up this great, it refers to him as this great cloud of witnesses who are cheering for us in the game of life. So isn't that cool? Your saintly grandmother and grandfather and aunt, along with Moses and many other people, are cheering for you as you live life. That's the picture this passage gives. That's an inspiring picture. But, and it's motivating, but there's also one other thing we need to understand. If you're in a really big crowd, uh, you never, if you're the athlete on the field of play, you never hear that individual voice, do you? I mean, if you're a Buckeye playing on the football field and the Buckeye Hall of Famers are in the audience, Chris Carter and Eddie George and Archie Griffith and Chris Spielman, all those guys are there. As a player, you would really value hearing their cheering and their encouragement and their advice, even them telling about some of the mistakes they made in life more than you would me telling you about you were doing a great job. I mean, I love watching football, but I couldn't tell the difference between a cover, de- cover two defense and a, well, another kind of defense, which is, tells you the level of my knowledge of play calling on defense. I can't even remember a term other than cover two, but I, I love watching the game. So today we're going to bring Samson from the Old Testament out of that crowd of witnesses cheering for us. And we're going to let him speak some wisdom to us and some encouragement to us about being real godly men and followers of God. Now, the perplexing thing with Samson is he's disobedient to God. He's regularly disobedient to his parents. He didn't fulfill fully his calling that God gave him. Samson allowed himself to be sucked into destructive behavior, hanging out with the wrong crowd, doing the wrong things, was seduced by a woman who was madly, he was madly attracted to and he thought loved him, but she didn't love him. And then his eyes are gouged out and he lives the last years of his life in forced labor, blind, chained, forced to walk in circles, pushing a grain mill around all day. I don't know about you. But when I've been around great leaders, Christian or otherwise, one of the things I find most valuable 
is for them to tell me what they learned from their failures. Why? Because I think all of us know that we fail, and we all, none of us want that failure to define us. And so we love to hear how other people failed and how they learned through it and lived through it and became better so that we can hopefully not make the same mistakes, or if we do make them, we can recover faster when we do. And I think the first pieces of wisdom Samson would give us come right out of his failures. He would tell us he was blind to some really important things long before his eyes were taken from him. I think Samson would say to us, we can be so easily blind to God's purpose in our, for our life. I mean, God gifted Samson for leadership and made him strong as a warrior and had a call on his life. God gifted him for a purpose, but Samson never really grasped or at least never really owned that calling. Instead, he treated his talents from God as something he was good at, and he used it for his own pleasure and thrill. Judges 13, we see this angel of God speaking to this barren woman who becomes pregnant and is the mother of Samson, giving birth to Samson. In that, we see Samson's purpose. When the angel says, Samson will be dedicated to God from the womb, he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And I'm sure that Samson's mother spoke to him with deep passion about that encounter with the angel, about God's purpose for, his, for, for him the entire life that he was growing up, to lead and deliver Israel from the heavy oppression of their harsh conquerors, the Philistines. Historians look back and they actually say the Philistines at the time were the most advanced, ferocious, brutal military force on the face of the planet. Samson had heard his purpose. And it was even clarified for him, maybe in more clear ways than you and I experience our sense of calling in our own lives. But Samson never really connected, never really owned that calling and never saw his calling clearly for what it was. I think too many of us go through life without clarity or deeply owning that sense of God's call on our lives. So we end up living, bouncing between various types of goals and just looking for the next thing to do rather than living with clear and compelling purpose. And the problem is when we don't have clear purpose, when we don't understand our reason for wanting to get up every morning, the way God has wired us and what we're to be about, we tend to make poor decisions, don't we? I mean, I know for me, I make a whole lot better decisions in my life when I'm strongly connected to my purpose. I say no to the good in favor of the best. And when I'm tempted by unhealthy things, when I have a clear sense of my purpose, I more easily say no to those things. Purpose in life makes all of us make better choices. Every single one of us in this room has a good God-given purpose for which God has gifted you and made you and called you to be a part of. But if we don't see that purpose clearly, we'll struggle. Proverbs 29, I think, says it best. It says, where there is no revelation, that word revelation, what it means is where there is no God-given dream, where there is no God-given purpose, vision, or direction for your life, people do what? They cast off all restraint. When I don't see God's purpose for my life, I tend to trade God's best for a counterfeit purpose. And counterfeit always leads, at the very least, to less than one hopes for, and at the very most, to destruction and pain. 
If you struggle with a sense of purpose, we'll talk about that more in the future, but in the meantime, purpose is about honoring God and ourselves and what we have been given, our gifts and talents by God, and in taking those elements and using them for glorifying God in this life. Colossians 3 puts it this way. It says, whatever you do, that's a lot, right? Kind of everything, isn't it? In word or deed, kind of covers everything, right? Do it all in the name of or as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And because of that, whether you are sharing your faith with someone or whether you are crunching numbers or cleaning toilets, it goes on to say a couple verses later, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for God, working for the Lord, not for your human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving in whatever you are doing, whenever you are doing it. Focus on that. Focus on living with a whole heart for God, an effective life. If you're a business person, you've heard it before, next Sunday during the 11th service, you can jump into a fantastic group designed to help you connect to God's purpose in your work and your life, no matter what you do. So I think Samson would go on and say to us as well that we can so easily be blind to the power of relationships. Think about it. Relationships have a lot of power in our lives, whether good or bad. Bad relationships can lead to so much pain. Good relationships can lead to so much blessing. Samson, in his unfocused, misguided adventures, gets out, out in the world and comes home one day and says to his parents in Judges 14, I've seen this Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go get her for me as my wife. Kind of demanding, don't you think? It kind of makes the marriage proposal a little easier if you can just tell your parents, too, to go get it. You don't have to plan all this fancy stuff, right, today? His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now, let's back up from this a second. Understand something here. Wanting Samson to marry among his own people is not a racist statement by his parents. It is perfectly wonderful if you want to marry someone of a different race or a different culture. What this is getting at is pure common sense. That if God wants you to marry someone who is also a follower of Jesus, why? Well, think about it for a second. Having a really good marriage is hard work. Lots of joy with lots of hard work. So why would you want to make what is already hard that much harder by marrying someone who doesn't share your core values, your core beliefs, someone who doesn't see the world the same way you do? See, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your faith is the core of your life. It shapes everything. It shapes how you see yourself. It shapes how you see others. It shapes how you see life, what you believe about parenting, morality, money. It shapes everything. So all Samson's parents are saying and all the Bible is saying when it says don't marry someone who is not a follower of Jesus is simple common sense designed to greatly increase your chances that your marriage is happy and brings you what your heart really longs for in marriage. But Samson wants nothing to do with it. 
He's smitten by this Philistine woman. Even though this verse immediately, the verse immediately following this tells us that God was involved in letting Samson uh, marry this Philistine girl, from the way it's actually worried, worded, if you read it closely, God wasn't in it because he was trying, God was in it because he was trying to redeem some of the purpose for Samson's life, even in the midst of Samson's bad choices. This wasn't plan A, this was plan X with God. So what Samson was blind to in this relationship was his decision to marry this Philistine girl would define the rest of his life in the worst kind of way. And here's the truth. The most important relationships in our lives do define our lives. And sometimes when that definition is negative, some people never fully recover. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it this way. He says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So here's some great advice, all for Father's Day. Young people, meaning anyone younger than me, your parents know a whole lot more about what you're facing in life and what you're going through and who you are hanging out with than you give them credit for. They've experienced what you're going through and already had to navigate that even if it was in a technologically inferior age. And even if they didn't navigate it well, some of our most valuable lessons in life come from other people's mistakes. Ephesians 6, Paul is actually quoting the Ten Commandments. He says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So honor your father and mother, not just because you're told to, but because you will live longer and you will live more fully with greater enjoyment if you do so. So honor them, even for the lessons you've learned where they have tried and failed. Why? Because they tried. And even if they didn't learn from the failure, you get to learn from it and not repeat it. Dads, you can pay me later. Happy Father's Day. If you still don't believe me, then at least believe the great philosopher and theologian of our day, Taylor Swift. Who wrote, when you're 15, somebody tells you they love you, you're going to believe them. But they don't. At age 15, uh, girls, boys who tell you they love you, it's mostly driven by hormones. Just saying. Samson would also say to us, you can be blind to the nature of God. Over and over again, Samson used the gift God had given him recklessly and sinfully without godly purpose. He disobeyed God and disobeyed his parents. He loved showing off his great strength. So after the whole debacle with his Philistine wife, Samson hooks up with Delilah. He's sleeping with her and he's lying to her repeatedly. And yet in the, even in the midst of that, God's presence and God's gifting and his strength and leadership on him was still very much present even while he was living an ungodly life. That doesn't seem right. Why was God with him? It's because God is incredibly patient. He's incredibly kind, incredibly merciful and loving. God works so hard to woo you and I to Him by leading with His undeserved mercy and kindness to woo our hearts back to Him. We serve an amazing, awesome God. 
But Samson went outside of God's ways again and again and again. And I think sometimes we do too in our lives. And we start to think, oh, no big deal. God is still with me. God will forgive me. God is merciful and gracious. I have nothing to worry about. And then we end up sometimes running into an experience, a point in life like Samson that rudely awakens us to set up the context of his experience. Delilah is constantly trying to figure out Samson's key to the godly strength time and time after time. Uh, Samson toys with her and lies to her about it. Delilah is actually working for the Philistines, intending to betray Samson, though he doesn't know that. And finally, after many times of lying to her, Delilah finally says, How can you say, I love you, when you won't even confide in me? You have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it, so he told her everything. And the text goes on to describe how Delilah subdued Samson, how she had him asleep in her room, and then Delilah finished the betrayal. It goes on and says, Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And now Samson finds himself blind, eyes gouged out, in shackles doing slave labor, being made sport of by all his enemies, the Philistines. All because he took for granted that God would be with him in spite of his knowing bad behavior. Hear me. You're going to come to Quest and the majority of the messages are going to be about how much God loves you, how gracious he is, how patient God is. And every message we do, regardless, will have a strong element of that in it. Why? Because it's true. God is an amazing Savior, an amazing friend. He rescues us. He lovingly pursues us. Even when we are putting up walls and running from Him, He lovingly pursues us. All that is rock-solid truth. But the picture of the nature of God is so much bigger than that. God is also, by nature, holy and just. One who is to be respected with great awe. One who is to be honored, believed, and trusted. In Genesis 6, God says, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. God's patience and mercy is abundant and is far, far greater than anything we could ever imagine, we would ever consider giving ourselves. But it's not endless. God is not just merciful and loving. He is also just. And one day, He will judge. Because if God isn't just, then He cannot be loving. So eventually, if we scorn God's ways and live life taking advantage of His mercy, we will eventually step beyond His mercy and the grace of God and we will pay the price. God will remove His protection and His blessing and He'll do it for a loving purpose. He'll do it hoping that the pain of your folly will cause you to hit bottom and return to Him so He can love you and bless you in abundance once more. See, but some say, well, Jesus changed all that, didn't He? Now God is only gracious and mercy. That doesn't even make sense. You can't be gracious and mercy without justice. None of us believe you can be loving without justice. We all demand justice. But beyond that, an honest reading of Jesus' own words makes us face judgment and justice. And the Apostle Paul 
says the same thing in Romans 6. He puts it this way. He says, what shall we say then? Now, the context of this, the previous five chapters have been all about Paul laying out how awesomely extravagant God's grace and mercy and forgiveness is. And then he comes to this and he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So that we can take advantage of the grace? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, what Paul is saying is one is foolish, one is fake. If they think because we are forgiven and God is so merciful that we can therefore go on sinning without regard or concern. Samson would stand here today and say to us, I was blind to the nature of God. I took his mercy for granted. I assumed that because I was disobedient and God was still with me, that no matter what I did, he would always be with me. But one day, suddenly, when I expected God and his strength to be there, he wasn't. And I paid dearly. When we fully know the nature of God, we will know how extravagantly loving He is and therefore also how just He is. So I think as Samson would start walking back to the crowd and rejoin the crowd in the stands cheering for us, I think he'd leave us with three words of encouragement. I think the first one he'd say would be center your life around pleasing God, not using your gifts and your talents to please yourself. On this Father's Day, think about that for a moment. What is it that a child can do that would please their dad? Is it bringing them a cold drink when they want it? Is it mowing the lawn? Well, those things are nice, right? But the greatest thing a child can do to please their parents is obey. Because if a child just does nice things, you can feel, it can feel good, but you may be wondering, what are they, what are they wanting, right? I mean, we know that. Somebody's, your kid's doing a lot of nice, you kind of go, well, what do you want from me? right? But when someone obeys, what does it say? It says, I respect you. I trust you. I know you want what's best for me. I love you. I want a good relationship with you. See, if you want to walk into the fullest measure of God's blessing and the purpose for your life, just do what God's word says and what you understand him to be speaking to you personally about your life and what you should do. See, I find it interesting Lots of conversations with many people who want the blessing of God on their life, but they don't want to do what he asks. We want God to bless our wealth, but we don't want to handle our money the way God asks us to. We want God's presence, but we don't want to spend regular time getting to know him. Samson would also encourage us to choose relationships wisely because he didn't. He didn't choose them wisely. He didn't really notice how powerful and take note of how powerful relationships can be for good or for bad in his life. So be intentional in your relationships. We need to have, each one of us needs to have enough relationships in our lives that know us well enough to consistently encourage us to be faithful followers of Jesus. And we need relationships where we can influence others for the good. But make sure those relationships are ordered in a way that you are influencing the other relationships for good and the people, enough people around you are influencing you for good and not influencing you for bad because of that relationship. You want to be influenced for good so that you become more like Jesus. You love more like Jesus. And so others see Jesus in you and experience his inviting love in you. 
See, you and I, we don't significantly change apart from relationship with God and relationship with other people. So can I just be honest for a second? For the vast majority of us, probably 99% of us, unless we are in a small group, your friendships will not be intentional about growing, about discussing challenging things, praying together, and encourage you to grow in all the areas of your life. Because most friendships resort to a lower common denominator of just fun and kind of surface support. We have more people in small groups here than we have on an average Sunday attendance. We have lots of great small groups. If you want to help start one, come talk to me. We'll help you start a group. It's so important. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, isn't that an awesome motivational goal to spur one another on to be the best version of who you are in life? That's great, right? But the author immediately goes on to tell us how that happens. He says, not, he says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the judgment day approaching. So, so here's the point of that. Our relationship with God, his followers, the church needs to have regular, consistent rhythm in order for us to experience all God wants. The rhythms, the habits of our lives are really, really important. We don't get the first statement's reality of becoming the best loving version of ourselves whose lives are full of rewarding good deeds without the second part of that sentence, the habits and the consistency of attendance. Because through consistency comes relationships. And through consistency comes that regular opportunity to refocus us on what is best, right, and good in following God. And we need those consistent habits in order for the first reality to become part of our lives. So commit to a group and commit to regular Sunday worship because it's a simple rule of the universe. You are a direct result of the habits you have that lead you to the thoughts you think, the people you spend time with, and the books, speakers, and media that you consume. See, the thing I think Samson would then save as last for us, I think is actually the most powerful. And it really is kind of two things in one statement that answers the perplexing question of, why on earth, with all of his disobedience, is this guy listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith? Well, three in the first part of that is because the Bible is God's story of mercy, love, and grace. It's not primarily the story, the Bible isn't, of the great people whose lives are there that we should emulate. In every way. I mean, there are many people in the Bible that there's things about them we should emulate. We get that, but that's not the point of the Bible. So many people's objections to the Bible are based in how could this or that person, like, like in the Bible, like Samson, be godly and great examples for us? They were such screw-ups and did so much evil. And some actually reject the Bible because of that. But the people who use that objection to dismiss the Bible do so because they miss the entire point of the Bible. The people in the Bible, even the greats of the Bible, are screw-ups, just like you and me. The real story is not the characters in the Bible, but the merciful, patient, 
God who loves them and works through them even though they are so imperfect and fail so often. And that leads us to the part B of this point that I love so much that gives us so much hope. With God, failure is never final. I mean, Samson, after years of slavery and mockery, finds himself once again on display for all of the leaders of his enemies to mock. We see it in Judges 16. The scribe capturing the story writes, Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. You and I, we serve a just once more God. You and I can mess up the whole thing. And when we humble ourselves and we turn to God and pray, His strength comes back in us and God can work through us again. See, in the end, Samson's life, it goes on to say, God did more through him to deliver the people from evil of their oppressors than in all of the rest of Samson's life in that one moment. Once more can be more than a lifetime of more in our lives. Isn't that hope-giving? That even when you have messed up so much and all seems lost in the purpose of your life, once more is all God needs in order to do something significant through you. See, sometimes we talk about this as the God of the second chances, but I, but I think it's different than that. One day Jesus' disciples were asking Jesus about forgiveness and, and how many times they should forgive. And one of the guys says, well, well we should forgive seven times, thinking that's like, you know, like I'm going to get brownie points for that. That's a really good answer, right? And Jesus comes back, kind of I can picture him smiling, saying this, but I say to you, forgive 70 times seven. Now, for all of you who just did the math, that doesn't mean just 490 either. He's using numbers that in the Jewish culture would have been understood as perfect numbers. So what Jesus is saying is never stop forgiving. Never. It's not just once more or a second chance or a third chance. God is always looking to you with a readiness to do a once more in your life. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the extravagant love he has for us. Some of you listening today, you need to hear that. Because God, God hasn't given up on you. You may have failed morally. You may have failed to fulfill a dream. You may feel lost in life. But God is saying, come to me, humble yourself, turn to me, rely on me, and let's get back up and let's go and do this thing. Someone listening may have been beaten down so much by someone else's moral failure or the failure in a business or a dream that's left you in this place of just wanting to give up on your future. But God is saying, once more, let's get up. Let's do this thing. I'm ready to redeem the situation and still do great things through your life. All you have to do is see that God is for you and humble yourself Repent of the things you've done wrong and then God helps you stand up again and He becomes your once again God. Because with God, failure is never final unless we refuse to repent and turn to Him in humility and trust. So fathers, men here today, we often look at men in our culture and we idolize what we think of as manhood. And Samson really is one of those characters that if you were alive today, a lot of people would look up to and, and, and admire. 
But Samson shows the greatest definition of manhood, the greatest definition of being a good father in this late-in-life moment for him. When after all he's experienced, all the pain, all the problems he's experienced, the, the slavery, he refuses to be bitter toward God. He refuses to blame God. Instead, he has the strength to humble himself before God and own his junk and stand up and follow God, even if just for one more step. And that's the reason Samson is in the hall of fame of faith for us. No matter how good or how bad of a man or dad you've been, God has great plans for you. If you will learn the greatest of all strengths, humility, repentance, turning to God in trust. So what do we do with this? Where do you need God in your life? Do you need to humble yourself and ask for once more in your life because you've given up on that? Where do you need to take Samson's wisdom to be more intentional in honoring God first or being more intentional in your relationships? What steps can you take this week? Would you stand with me as we pray? Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here today and that you as the person of God are here pursuing us right now. That no matter what walls we put up, no matter what uh, we've willingly disobeyed in, knowingly disobeyed in, you are still pursuing us. So I pray that you'd help each and every one of us walk in the fullness of the purpose, the fullness of the blessing you have for us, that you would help us in those areas where, where we've been hard, where we've been hurt, where we put up walls, to just humble ourselves and come to you and trust you with that area. And to take just a simple step so that you can be in our lives that once more, God, again and again and again. Lord, even as we turn to you in worship now, would you, would you take our voice through these words and would you come to us and show us how much you love us and would you receive our praise in Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.